Welcome to the Upper Perkiomen Community Church Podcast. Join us on Sundays at 258 Main Street, East Greenville, Pennsylvania. Refreshments at 9 a.m. Worship gathering at 9.30 a.m. Or visit us online at upcconline.org. Please sit back and enjoy our teaching time now with lead pastor, John Buckley. Today we're going to jump into Saul now, and we're going to find a whole lot about Saul that's going to be really eye-opening to us, and you're going to see him on the stage in a whole different situation. So 1 Samuel 11, we're just going to kind of break down and go through this today, but what I want to do to kind of give you a layout of things as we go through this is there's a map I want to show to you along the way. So today's message is called Saul Steps Up to the Plate, and we're going to begin just by going over a little bit of the background of what happened here. So if you can see up here on the screen, I tried to get as big a map as I could for you to be able to see what's happening. But I'm going to read a few verses, and we're going to see where we're at and what's taking place there. So let's start in verse number one there. The Bible says this, Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I'll make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes that, bring disgrace, that thus bring disgrace on all Israel. So we're going to see what's going on here. See, over here is Ammon. Ammon is where the Ammonites came from. Nahash the king, Nahash, his, he had a great name. His name, Nahash, meant snake. Isn't that what we all want to name our kids? Nahash meant snake. He was the king of Ammon at the time. Now, Ammon's a very interesting background there because Ammon actually came from the, old, excuse me, the younger daughter of Lot through that incestuous relationship. The nation of Ammon was birthed out of that. The oldest daughter was her, her tribe that came out of the incestuous relationship with her dad ended up in Moab. So you got the Moabites and the Ammonites, both who come way back from that time of Lot when he had that sexual relationship, that incestuous relationship with his daughters. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 19. So the Ammonites are known enemies and on, on are kind of been uh, long-term enemies of the Israelites Way back when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they were trying to get to the promised land, you'll see in Deuteronomy 23 how they refused to let the Israelites come through their, through their territory. So there had been this tension between both of them for quite some time. So that's the Ammonites. Now they're over here, and they're going to go up to Jabesh-Gilead. Now Jabesh-Gilead was part of the tribes that were on the other side of the Jordan River. The, the, two, the, um, the tribe of Manasseh is where Jabesh-Gilead would have been located. That was their area. Ammon, just to give you a geographical location, Ammon would be in what today is modern-day Jordan. Still conflict going over there between Ammon, Jordan, and the Israelites. So you have Ammon, you have Jabesh-Gilead. So they're kind of on the outskirts of the territory of Israel. Now we're going to bring that map up in a few minutes uh, as we go on into the message, but I wanted to give you a context there of what was happening uh, with things taking place. It's interesting to note that Jabesh-Gilead, because of what takes place here, they are so loyal to Saul that even after Saul and his sons are killed by the Philistines, their men, kind of a commando unit from Jabesh-Gilead, are so loyal to Saul that they go down to Bashan where his body was, Saul's body was, and they actually, in the in the secret of night, steal back the body of Saul and his sons further down in history as, uh, when Saul is killed. So there's a, a deep loyalty that comes as a result of what happens here with the, with the city of Jabesh-Gilead and their loyalty to Saul. So that's kind of the context of where we're at with things. Now what happens here? So Nahash, he wants to expand his territory. So he goes and he 
pokes his nose into what would be the, the least defended of a nation, which really is a nation of tribes right now. There wasn't a unity in the nation. There wasn't really a, a, a concerted effort to work together. Yes, there were relatives. They were brothers and sisters. They were all Jews. They recognized that. But there was nothing that drew them together in a sense of unity. So you can imagine Jabesh Gilead, they hear what happens. And it's interesting to note here. They immediately, as we read, they immediately go, okay, we'll make a treaty with you. Well, why is that? Because they knew they had no chance militarily. It was just them. This little town, Jabesh Gilead, nobody heard of, on the outskirts of the nation of Israel in an ununified nation. Man, make a treaty because we know we're going to be wiped out if we don't do that. So they immediately they, they respond that way. And Nahash goes, sure, I'll do that, but I, not only am I going to take you guys, but I'm going to gouge out the eye of all the men. That would have been fighting men of the city. Any of those who were at that age where they had, had their rite of passage, and they were potential warriors. Now, why would they do that? Now, he says, because he wants to bring disgrace on Israel. Now, that was certainly one, because anybody that came to Jabesh Gilead and saw all the men would ask the question, why are all your fighting men, why are their eye gouged out? Well, because Nahash the Ammonite. It would show his power, his control, how he, these people became subservient to him. But also, there was a military reason for it. A guy with his eye gouged out wasn't so good with the bow and arrow anymore. Wasn't so good with sword fight anymore. Wasn't so good with accuracy, with spear throwing. So it was a twofold reason there. He wanted to take them out as a threat and also use it as a way to be able to disgrace or put down that, that tribe, hoping that would send a message to the rest of Israel, which I'm assuming his plan was to be able to continue to move on and take over all of the land of Israel. So you see that in the first three verses. Uh, let's read verse 3 again, though. I, in fact, I'm not sure if I read that. Verse 3 says, The elders of Jabesh Gilead, we're going to look at their dire predicament here we've been looking at. The elders of Jabesh Gilead said to him, Give us seven days respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel, that if there's no one to save us, we'll give ourselves up to you. Now, the next verse starts out saying, we're not going to get into it yet, but look at the next verse real quick, the first couple of lines, when the messengers came. So you can see how confident Nahash is that nothing's going to happen. Because at Jabesh Gilead, they go, hey, would you please, Nahash, would you let us send messengers out? Give us seven days to travel and see if we can get some help. Now, what general in his right mind would go, sure, go, find a, go try to find reinforcements, get some more soldiers, great idea. Unless he was completely confident that these pathetic Israelites were in no way going to be able to rise up an army, raise up an army that was going to be able to fight against him. See the confidence of Nahash and the desperation of the folks of Jabesh Gilead. A hopelessness. And yet, a twinge of hope. Maybe, just maybe, somebody will come to our rescue. Just maybe. They were in quite the dire predicament. But we see in verse 4, as we go to the next section there, there's a call to arms. <clears throat> and the Bible says this in verse 4. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, <clears throat> they reported the matter in the ears of the people. And all the people wept aloud. Wow. First response by the folks of Gibeah. Now we're getting further into the land of Israel. Their first response wasn't, yeah, let's go beat them. What was their first response? Wail. They were in anguish. Oh, no. We know we can't have, we don't have the resources. Our friends, our relatives in Jabesh Gilead, they're doomed. 
That was their first response. Again, reinforcing that hopelessness. We can't win this battle. We can't win this battle. Now, Gibeah, by the way, this is where Saul lived. This was a town a few miles north of Jerusalem. It was a town that became the first capital of Israel because Saul, that was his hometown, and that's where things began. Their response is heard by Saul as we continue on there. Verse 5, now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. Now, wait a minute. Saul's in a field with oxen? Saul's the king. What's he doing in a field with oxen when he's the king? Because although he had been coronated king, he hadn't done anything where people really rallied behind him as the king. So Saul went back to doing what he always did. He was a farmer. So Saul gets back home. It's like, these, Israel never had a king before. And there was no reason to do anything great yet. And so what are you going to do, Saul? I guess I'm going to go plow the fields. So he's back there, and he hears about what happens. And the Bible says in Saul, in verse 5, the second half, and Saul said, what's wrong with the people that they're weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now in the Old Testament, there were specific times when God would have his spirit go on certain individuals. You'll see that in Saul. Not only that God's spirit went on Saul, but you're also going to see later on where God takes away the spirit of God from Saul. You saw that with Samson, or you'd see that with Samson as well as Judges, where the spirit of God was on him. Now, you know what? Praise the Lord. The Bible gives us clearly that once we become a Christian today, because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that when we are a Christian at the point of salvation... The Holy Spirit comes into our life and is our comforter. Jesus said he was going to leave that comforter when he went to heaven to prepare a place for us. So we don't have to worry about the Spirit of God coming on and coming off of us. We have the Spirit of God at the point of salvation. Praise the Lord for that. But when you see the Spirit of God come on Saul, here this meek guy that was hiding in an armory tent is now on the war path. The Spirit of God comes on him, and this righteous indignation raises up in Saul. How dare thee, they? Then he does something that was done back in Judges 19 and 20. You'll find back there that there was an individual whose concubine was violated by the people of the area, and it violated so much that she was killed, she died. And Judah, was the man's name, cut up her body and sent her pieces to all the tribes to rally them up to go and to fight against this and to see the wickedness that was taking place. So Saul kind of takes a page out of the playbook, but he takes oxen this time. And he chops them up, and he sends them to everybody, and he says, everybody, we have a battle to fight, we have our brothers that we need to save, and if you don't come and help us out, you're in trouble. And I love what he says here. Let me read that specifically from the word here. He says this, um, he took a yoke of oxen, that would have been two, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever doesn't come out after Saul, what do he say next? And who? What was that? Samuel. See, Saul's smart. Well, the Spirit of God's guiding him too, but Saul knew that he still was new to this, but he knew that they had the words of Samuel that they would follow, because Samuel was the tried and tested man of God. So Saul goes, you send this out and say, Saul and Samuel. Now, we don't ever say see Samuel coming against this statement, so we're assuming that he agreed with it. But that together, he goes, you go out and you tell them, everybody needs to get together and they need to rally together. We have a battle to fight. 
What was their responses? <clears throat> Whoever doesn't come after Saul and Samuel, so shall be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord, this fear came upon them, and they came out as one man. Now, this is a miraculous thing, folks. This was a disjointed, territorial, pig-headed, stubborn group of Jewish people. Reminds me a lot of Americans. And they had their own little tribes, their own little government systems. Yes, they worshipped Yahweh God, but they kind of were all set themselves. They wanted to make sure that they were the ones running things. But God, and any time we know that God gets involved in something, things happen. And God got involved there and put a fear on them that said, we got to fight together here. And I love that phrase. And they come together as one man. I believe strongly that in our day and age, the devil is trying very hard to bring disunity to the body of Christ. And we do that in so many ways. We have brothers and sisters in different churches throughout this region and throughout this world that sometimes we may not worship with if not everything is exactly the same. But if they agree with us in the theology of Scripture, then they're not our enemies. They're our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we will see them in heaven. It's amazing how the competitiveness can kick in, how we think we're better than somebody else, how we look down our nose at other people. But when we can see God bring a unified group of people, that first song we sing, we are the church. UPCC is a part of the body of Christ to do God's work on this earth. And when God has a unified group of people, things happen. And these Israelites finally got together as one man, the Bible says. That call to arms was given. <clears throat> and then we see in verse 8, a battle's fought. The Bible says this. <clears throat> when he mustered them at Bezak. Now I'm going to pull up that map again. If you can pull that map up again. When he mustered them at Bezak, while she's doing that, I'll read. The people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. Now why is the split there when it wasn't the split kingdom? More than likely, the reason they gave 300,000 in Israel and 30,000 in Judah is because whoever wrote this wrote it afterwards when the split kingdom was taking place. And they referred to everything as Judah and Israel after the kingdom was split into, after uh, Solomon died and, and things happened there. So they were together now. So although he mentioned the two groups, Israel was one nation right now. So 330,000 men all gathered together up here. They go from Gibeah, see where they're at, just north of Jerusalem. And they go all the way up to Bezak. So that's where they're mustering. Gather all together. The troops are there, and they've got to get a game plan to defeat Nahash. Now, remember, it sounds awesome. Yeah, 300, you've got to realize, these are 330,000 guys that hadn't worked together before. They hadn't fought together. They, haven't, they hadn't trained together. They hadn't carried out maneuvers together. Yeah, there was 330,000 fighting guys. We don't know what kind of fighting guys they were. Oh, yeah, well, he's the town bully. He's a fighting guy. Or he's a trained soldier. They didn't really have an army, a national army. They were just these tribal bands. They weren't used to this unified working together on that massive of a scale. Most generals would have looked at that and thought, this will be a nightmare. How do you get them all together to do the same things at the same time that they gather up there at Bezek? And the Bible says this in verse number 9. And they said to the messengers who'd come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. 
Can you imagine? That would be one of the times I'd want to be a messenger. There's times in the Bible I think, I don't want to be that guy. I didn't, would not want to be Nathan when he had to go to talk to David, the king, and say, you're the, you're, you're the man, you're the sinner. The king of the nation that can, like, have your head chopped off. But this time, they get to go back to Jabesh Gilead, walking by the Ammonites who are like, yeah, go in there. Nobody behind you, I see. No hope, right? And they get to go in the gates, and the gates shut, and they go, guys, tomorrow, tomorrow salvation comes. Now, I imagine that they were skeptical. Because, again, we're talking about a divided nation. But you see that that messenger, as he went in, he could get them all excited about the fact that, yes, victory's coming. Salvation will take place for us. Wow. Rejoice. And it says this. Um, verse 10. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you. They said this to Nahash. Give ourselves up to you. And you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Now, that wouldn't be a normal phrase for somebody to say, but the reason they were saying it is they wanted the Ammonites to feel like they were completely and totally defeated and had no hope. Well, you, you know what? We'll give you up tomorrow. Let us prepare ourselves. Tomorrow we'll come out. We're all yours. I bet you there was a big party in the camp of the Ammonites that night. We did it. This little puny town of Jabesh Gilead, they realized we're better than them, and this is going to be the first of many cities of Israel that we're going to take on. We are it. We are the conquerors. That's not quite what happened. And we see as we continue on, verse 11. The next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck the Ammonites. Now, what happened there is so they could have as much secrecy as possible because Ammon is not expecting anything. So he broke them up into three crews so they could attack from different angles and did it on what they call the last watch, which would have been sometime between 2 in the morning and 6 in the morning. Not many people are up at 2 to 6 in the morning. So they hit it the right time. So again, you see God giving Saul some military prowess in the situation as well. And look what happens. And they struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. The heat of the day would have been mid-morning, so somewhere between 2 and 6 in the morning to somewhere between 9 and 12 in the morning is when this battle took place. So we're talking hours. And the battle was so victorious that not two Ammonites were together. Wow. Can you imagine being an Ammonite that morning? And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, these wild, crazy Israelites start running to your camp. Not a couple of them, 330,000 of them coming from every side possible, and you are scared to death, and you lose track of all your friends, all your contacts, all your leaders, and they're just running for their lives. Then we see the last thing, a king is born. Yes, I know a king was already coronated, but now you see a king that's really born. You see that Saul really takes the stage. Verse 12, then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said Saul shall, who is it that said shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. Wow, these guys aren't going, hey, we beat the enemy. They're like, okay, who said Saul isn't a guy they should follow? Yeah, bring him here. We're going to kill him. Man, these guys, they were fired up about Saul now. And I love, you can see how God works through Saul in the situation and Saul's response in verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day. Now listen to this phrase, for today the Lord 
has worked salvation in Israel. See, you see Saul here acknowledging something you're not going to see later on in Saul's life, but now you see how he's saying, with the power of the Spirit of God on him, saying, wait a minute, guys, we're not going to kill anybody. This is a day for us all to rejoice because God's the one. Not I'm the one. Not you all are the one. Not Israel's the one. God's the one that brought salvation. God's the one that brought victory. And then what's it say? Then Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. Now wait a minute, he was already king. But you'll notice this in David's reign as well, when David was anointed king, and then when David was acknowledged as king, both came for Saul and David after their first military victory was taken place. So now they're really see because they saw this guy in action and said, this guy is a guy worth following. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Why did they rejoice? Well, they won a victory, but you know what was even greater? They united a nation. They saw God, I should say, unite a nation. And their perspectives were right. They didn't just rejoice in the battle won. They offered sacrifices in order to be obedient to the God that brought them salvation as well. I have a few things I want you to kind of think about in application. It's a powerful story. And when you read in Scripture and you look at these things, a lot of times it's easy to go, okay, well, how does that apply to me today? And I think there's some some themes in here that scream to us that we can apply to our lives today. I've already touched on a couple of them. But the first thing I think that we can apply that we need to challenge ourselves with is the Holy Spirit is in you. Live like it. If you are a child of God, then you have the Holy Spirit of God living in you. That took place at the moment you came, you came to a point where you acknowledged you were a sinner and needed a Savior and asked Christ to be your Savior. If you're, not, if you're here today and you never did that, I beg of you today, take that step to make Christ your King, your Lord. If you're a child of God here today, you have the Holy Spirit in you. And this is my challenge to us. Too many times we don't live like the Holy Spirit's in us. We're fearful and cowardly and divisive and angry and we fight against each other instead of realizing the Holy Spirit is in us. Let's let the Holy Spirit, he prompts you and guides you. If we'll just let him, and I tell this to people all the time, you pray for God to give you an opportunity to share the gospel, he'll give it to you. The Holy Spirit will prompt you in those ways. You want to deal with things in your life, and you pray. The Holy Spirit is in us. He wants to help us as we get into the word and get around the people of God to become the man and woman of God that he wants us to be. Don't diminish what the Holy Spirit can do that lives within you. The second thing is the unity of the body is powerful. Fight for it. I've been a pastor for a few years now. And I have the privilege of talking into a lot of other pastors' lives. I have a very strong passion, I think you all know that, for mentoring and discipleship. And if I can do that with our people, that's my main priority. But I love being able to do it to others. And so I get a chance to talk to lots of guys. And you know what I see that destroys the body in too many ways is disunity. And unfortunately, it happens too often from the top down. And I'm telling you, as the lead elder here, that I do everything I can to fight for unity amongst our elder team. And we got a great group of elders, by the way. But there's times when you see the devil attacking, 
And it's my job to try to help the guys make sure we keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we do. It's my job to challenge us as a church for all of us to be unified because, folks, the things that we have in common that you committed to when you became a member here are amazing and powerful and wonderful things. And God has used this church for the last nine years to be able to make an impact in people's lives. And he's not done with this church. And he's not done with his kingdom on earth. The other churches that are out there trying to make a difference, that are making a difference for the Lord. Let's stop allowing disunity and disruption in our body. Now I say, Pastor John, do you know of something big? I don't. I just know the way the devil works. I know what the devil's trying to do to divide marriages, to divide parents from their kids, to divide members from members, to divide older from younger, to divide the church in any way he can. He'll throw busyness in your life to keep you disconnected. He'll throw complaints and negativity in your life to keep us disconnected. The devil knows that when God's people are unified, amazing things happen. So you know what we need at this church? As many people as possible that are willing to fight for the unity that we have. So what does that mean? That means we've got to confront each other on things. That means we've got to go out and love on somebody when they're really falling flat on their face. And they need somebody to help pick them up and pull them up and go, no, let's keep at this. That's for us to stop saying, well, why isn't somebody doing this for me? Instead of saying, no, the Holy Spirit lives in you. How are you going to do it for somebody else? And then we do it together to have the unity God wants. We saw what God did when Israel was unified. And I've seen what God can do with a church and, and churches that are unified. So let's fight for it. And then the last thing, <clears throat> the victories that come from God are amazing. Celebrate them. When I do counseling with people, one of the big things they'll hear me say is, when you see God give you victories, you need to celebrate them. Because when you're dealing with people that are struggling with all kinds of different things, it's really easy to think we're not getting any traction. And some battles are really hard. But you've got to stop because there's always going to be victories along the way. Israel didn't always win, folks, even when they were unified. Sometimes they lost because of one person. That's why unity is so important. But, hey, that's why last Sunday, if you missed last Sunday's members meeting, I think it was on the weekly update this week, I'm telling you, that was an amazing time to celebrate the victories that we've seen God do in this body. And folks, God's at work. And I encourage you, get with somebody else and grab a cup of coffee and just go, hey, what's God doing in your life? What verse has he shown you lately? How have you seen him interact in your life? And to celebrate those victories together, folks. It's not about pride. This isn't church here because John or the leadership or you all that we did something to make this. This is the grace and mercy of God. So let's celebrate it when he works in the people of God. Because there's way too much bad news out there. So why don't we be a people that changes that by celebrating the amazing things that happen. The negativity of the world seeps quickly into the seats of the church. We have to fight against it, folks. And they go, yeah, I know, we're not everything we need to be. I'm probably the biggest critic of our church. I'm also the biggest uh, proponent. Because I know what God's doing in your lives. And I weep with you when you're in times of trouble. And I rejoice in you when you're in times of victory. Because that's what I get the opportunity to do. But you know what? We all have that opportunity. So take time 
to celebrate the victories. The Spirit of God's in you. Let's live like it this week. How are you going to let the Spirit of God guide and work in your life? The unity of the body is powerful, so what are we going to do to fight for it? And the victories that come from God are amazing, so let's celebrate them together and be able to rejoice in what he's doing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. You're such a good God. Lord, thank you for just reminding us by watching what happened here. A little story in the Bible that could seem so insignificant yet has such powerful applications for us, God. Lord, thank you for allowing us to dig through this book and to learn these valuable principles or be reinforced in our life. Help us, Lord, to be a people of God who allow the Spirit of God to work and guide and direct us, Lord, not limit him. Lord, I pray if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that today would be the day they take that step and begin a relationship with you. Lord, help us as a church to be unified and to fight for it as a body, God. Lord, help us to be a church that celebrates the victories that you're doing day by day by day. We ask this in your precious name.